Turn to John chapter 6. We're going to look at that text in a second. But last week we looked at, we're on, we're on number 8 already. Chosen in Christ number 8. And this is part 2 of the covenant, looking at the covenant. Last week we looked at how the truth and the purpose of the covenant actually unfolds. And it comes into time and we, we can know about it. It's revealed to us in and by and through the gospel. And what we're looking at in this covenant is we're looking at ancient language, eternal language that is before the foundation of the world, between the Trinity. It's just a revelation of God's purpose, what his plan was, as it's revealed in stating it for us so we can understand it. And, you know, it uses some human terms. We know that it's eternal versus we're creatures of time. We know that God always had these thoughts, but he, he laid them out so we could at least some place see them so there's the unfolding of the covenant in time in other words what this is is the gospel what it does is it preaches out or declares the um, fulfillment of the terms and the conditions of the covenant of grace that's all that it is it's the terms and conditions and the gospel is the preaching out of that so it's the plan here comes christ he executes the plan and the, the gospel message that's recorded concerning what Christ did is the preaching out of the fulfillment of the terms and conditions of covenant promises. So we see how that, last week we looked really close, how that all those things match. The decree, the covenant, Christ performing it, the recording of it, the preaching of it, us believing it, us taking it after we believe it, we evangelize with it. And then after we're glorified, that's the topic of eternity, is what Christ accomplished. And we worship Christ for what he accomplished on the cross. We noted also that the three middle points of the doctrines of grace, Uli, U-L-I, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, each head of those doctrines of grace are focused in on each part of the Trinity. And so each part of the Trinity was involved in the covenant of grace. And we see as this covenant unfolds, we see the work of each one of the Trinity being involved as it comes out before time, in time, and then into eternity. And so we looked at that a little bit. Of course, the primary focus being on Christ. And we hope to continue to see that throughout the series, that Christ is the one having preeminence. As it says in Ephesians 1, it talks about how that he headed up all things in Christ. That's the focus. He headed, the Father headed all things up in Christ. And we mentioned also that this purpose of God, purpose in the decree, had a function to it. it. It was on purpose, but it had a purpose. It wasn't random or fatalistic. There are means involved to an end goal or result. And of course, mainly it's to glorify himself in the salvation of sinners by the death, the effectual death of Christ. And these people that are chosen, and that's what the series is about, that we are chosen in Christ, they're going to know about it. And they're going to glorify God for his chief goal of glorifying himself. I want to go to John 6 and show an example of the purpose of God as as a part of its fulfilled in time. And we see several facets of that, but here's one right here. John chapter six, 
and verse 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you also have seen me and do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and he that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Now we, we've touched on this verse several times, but for those that may be new to this teaching, maybe listening on video or sermon audio, this is talking about a specific group of people here where it says all that the Father, this is Christ speaking in John, all that the Father gives me. Christ is talking about, as the Son of God, he's talking about the Father. He says, all that the Father gives me. He's not talking about stuff. He's talking about people. And this is the people that God the Father has chosen in Christ. Remember John 17 says, talking about all authorities given unto me to give eternal life to as many as you have given me. Same people right here. John 10 talks about his sheep. Same people. Throughout the scripture, the introductory text that we use in the introduction of three or four messages, Ephesians 1, talks about as he had chosen us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Same people. We're going to look at a lot of other verses. It talks about a certain group of people. Remember the message that, that God chose some to save. This is them. All that the Father gives me in election, the Father chose them and turned them over to Christ to be responsible for them. Those shall come to me, those people that have been given to me, they shall come to me. And the way that's done is by faith. We believe. And the ones who believe, the elect, all the elect will believe. My sheep hear my voice. They follow me. I give to them eternal life. They shall never perish. So there's the unfolding right there, just in that one verse. They're chosen. They come to Christ. The reason they come to Christ is because Christ secured the gift of faith by purchasing it by his death. And he gives that God-given, he quickens them and gives them faith so that they can come to him by faith. And he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. They're going to be secure. They're going to be assured. They're going to be sealed by the Spirit of God. They are not going anywhere. They're in a new state of justification. The imputed righteousness of Christ is, is charged to their account. And they're also under the, the state of the non-imputation of sin. They cannot be charged with sin ever again because Christ was charged with their sin. So these are the people. No other people had their sins charged to Christ. Only these people. And as a result of these people that the Father gave to Christ and Christ died for them, as a result of that, they will come to him by faith and once that happens, it's a sure thing to happen because Christ didn't fail. Promise of God is not void. When they come to him, at that point, there is no, really at any point, there is no danger of anybody ever being lost because of the strength of the covenant was so sure and certain that Christ would not fail in his death. But when he secured all those things by his death and people come to him by faith, that's the evidence that their elect is faith in the gospel. After that, they're not going to be, they can't be cast out. They can't. And I can prove that by the rest of these verses. Christ, he says in verse 38, For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
We've already kind of talked about this using other verses that, uh, Lo, I'll come into volume the book to do thy will, O God. He came as a spokesman. He is the word. He came to reveal the Father, talk about the Father, do his Father's will. And here's part of it right here. He says in verse 39, and this is it. This is the will of him who sent me. Now, this is part right here of the mystery. We had talked last week about the mystery that had been hid, but is now revealed. This is part of it. Verse 39, and this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all which he has given me, and who is included in that group? The nations or the Gentiles, which was part of that mystery. Not just the Jews only, but some people out of every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation that the Father has chosen and turned over responsibility to Christ to be their representative and their surety and their substitute. This is the will of the Father. Somebody says, well, I, I remember, uh, Rob, you remember too, back in uh, when we first met, back in the 80s, it, tr it seemed to be trendy to talk about finding the will of God for your life and being found in the center of God's will. That was, those little catchphrases were, were kind of silly. Here's the will of God right here. This, this is an announcement by Christ, the spokesperson for the Father. This is the will of the Father who sent me. Here it is. I'm here to tell you that all which he's given me in election. No, stop right there. Time out. What about these people that just flat out deny election? They just deny it. God didn't choose a certain specific group of people. He chose everybody. And he wants everybody to be saved. They're denying this announcement right here. They're denying the will of the Father. Because if they include everybody here, then most are lost. And his will is thwarted. He failed. You might as well blame the whole Trinity if that happened. We know in the covenant it says he shall not fail. We're going to look at some other language today that shows the success of his work. This will of Father sent me that all these, he's talking about these people, all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again in the last day. These people are secure. They're going to be resurrected. They're going to be glorified. And he's going to be with them. He prayed later in John 17. I pray that these that, that I'm praying for will be with me where I am. Christ's prayer is effectual. It works. Nothing he does fails. Verse 40. Here's some redundancy of language. And this is the will of him who sent me. That everyone who sees the Son and believes on him should have everlasting life and look at the same language. I will raise him up in the last day. Now, who is this that sees the sun? It's the same people in a couple verses up ahead there. It's all that the Father gives me. Uh, think, of, think of like Matthew 11, where he prayed to the Father. I thank you, Father, heaven of earth, that you've hid these things from the wise and prudent, but you've revealed them unto babes. So, Father, it seemed good in your sight. Father, you're sovereign. You reveal the truth to your people and you blind the rest. 
Christ later in John 8, same language. He said, you know, you don't believe me. You think you're of Abraham, but you're of your father, the devil. Abraham believed in me. He goes to John 10, talks to the same type people. And he says, um, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I lay down my life for my sheep. You're not of my sheep. He flat out said, you're not of my sheep. And you can't believe because you're not of my sheep. Brings it back to a particular people. It's a particular people that the Father has given him. That's what this language is talking about. And the Jews murmured. The Jews, they don't, they don't like this transition. Christ the Reformer, as he's mentioned in Hebrews, who is the one who is the captain of salvation, the author and finisher of faith. He is the mediator uh, by the blood of his new covenant. And he is dealing with the nations. This is a mystery to these people right here that are murmuring. And the Jews murmured about him saying, because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. That's why they murmured, partly was the reason they murmured for a lot of different things. And they said, is not Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How now does this one say, I've come down from heaven? That's kind of like powerful, kind of supernatural, that they think it's kind of weird that he's starting to talk about like uh, deity language, right? And Jesus answered to them and said, don't murmur uh, with one another. And he hits them with uh, some offensive uh, sovereignty language. He says, no man can come unto me. All right, remember verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. That's by faith. Here he says the same type thing. Nobody can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draw this person that's coming. That's the only way you can come and be drawn by the Father because there's a gift of faith involved that's supernaturally imparted to the mind. There's a new mind. The promise of the covenant is a new heart, right? So a new heart is given, and in that the Spirit is indwelling and regenerates that heart and mind, and the gift of faith and repentance is given, and then you believe Christ. Simply, that's coming to Christ, is believing Christ. And that has to be done first by the Father drawing someone. Now, what did Christ say? All that the Father gives me shall come to me. Do you think the Father draws different people? Does he try to draw everybody? Like there's this group of people that the Father chose in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. Here they are. Does he mess with anybody besides those people? Why would he? How, what purpose would that serve? They're not going to believe. He deals with that one group only. And the rest, it's clear what he does. They won't be raised up in the last day. If they're not drawn by the Father, if they're not chosen by the Father, if they're not given faith to believe in Christ, all these things match. We don't we don't have a, a theology and a bunch of doctrine so disjointed and it's like we switch different groups of people. No, it's either elect or non-elect. Simple. The elect are affected by the grace of God, and they get all these spiritual blessings in Christ, and the non-elect. 
will receive condemnation in the end for their own sin. That's the grace of God displayed. Grace reigns through righteousness. The gospel is about the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. That's what we talk about every week. As it's written in the prophets, verse 45, in the Old Testament, they shall all be taught of God. These people that we're talking about, all of them, means will be involved, the gospel, and they'll all be taught of God. That's, that's how they're drawn. That's how they're called, as another phrase is used in the scripture. Effectually called. They're all going to be taught of God. Therefore, everyone who hears, you got to have ears to hear, and learns, got to have an understanding to learn, of the Father comes to me. Remember, all the Father gives me shall come to me. He's being very repetitive here. And verse 46 says, not that anyone has seen the Father. I think it's kind of neat here how that Christ, he kind of enforces his power as representative and exclusiveness as you have to come through me because I'm the only one that has seen the Father. And I'll tell you about him. Nobody else represents the Father but me, the mediator of the new covenant. Not, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, which is referring to himself, the one sent of God, he has seen him. So we know that no man can look upon God and even live. You've got to have a mediator. Christ is that mediator. So I just want to go to that text and just kind of lightly deal with it. We didn't look at a bunch of words and do word studies and stuff, but I wanted to show just a text that we're kind of familiar with, which is part of the unfolding of the plan and purpose him talking about what the will is, seeing, again, these three parts of the Trinity involved and showing, you know, our assurance and uh, peace is bound up in verses like this, that things are sure and certain based on the promise of God, the performance of Christ and the spirit dealing with us so that we can see these things. Now, you know, I'm talking about and I have been for a couple of weeks about this covenant. Some have called it the everlasting covenant, the eternal covenant, the covenant of grace, the covenant of redemption. There's different names. And you can't really look in the scripture and see all those and say, this is it. You have to pull language from all over the scripture and see that language and put it together and say, this in interpretively, this is what this is talking about. And, you know, I like to add extra, like the eternal everlasting covenant of grace. So just add as many words as you can, you know, to define it or, or title it. But what I want to say about it is this. First of all, there's a lot of stuff out there written about covenants, period. Covenants, plural. It's, a lot of it's very confusing because there's so many different views of holdings and different views and I mean, it's it's crazy out there. I'm telling you. And they have these long titles. What do you believe in a covenant? And it's just like I never heard that one before. You know, there's all kinds of them, and it's it is very very confusing. And I'm one to be more simplistic, so much so that lettered people might look at me and say <laughs> that I'm missing the boat. But you know, I'm thinking the opposite. We want to stay focused on the central things. So what we're looking at is this, whatever you want to call it, this was a compact, a contract that had to do with 
terms and conditions and promises that God had purposed and planned before time. You know, in a human way of telling us through anthropomorphic terms that we can understand, in eternal times did this, talked about it, and he said, here's what we're going to do. And then we've seen several verses how that it unfolds. And then there are other covenants in time with people. There's one with a nation. There's some with, with people, David, Abraham. Yeah, Noah, all these different covenants with people. I'm not really wanting to get into detail about those. You see certain aspects of the covenant in those covenants. But what I want to associate as far as covenants concerned more than any other covenant with the covenant we're dealing with now is the new covenant. I've always said about the new covenant that those in the Old Testament that believed the gospel believe the new covenant. They just believed it early. The, the new covenant is, is goes back into the Old Testament times. It's the promise of the coming Messiah, how that he will establish a righteousness and it will justify. You read about all these people that had faith in, um, in Romans 4, talks about David, Abraham. They had faith. They were justified in their lifetime based on the righteousness of another. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. What kind? Personal righteousness? No. It's obviously was not. So the gospel is in the Old Testament, but it, it kind of it went up and it grabbed that new covenant and it displayed who this one that was to come in the future was. So anybody that's ever been saved throughout history has been saved by the new covenant, by the mediator of the new covenant, even if they're in old covenant times, even if it was under the administration of the old covenant. Their faith is not in the sacrifices and the law-keeping. It looked forward to the one who was a meaner of the new covenant that fulfilled all those things. Of course, dispensationalism is, is the most offensive in that area. They believe just something totally different, that God saves you know, in different ways throughout history. And um, just look at Hebrews, and it's just one you can look at in um, Galatians and Colossians, and look at every book almost in the New Testament, and it just knocks all that out of the water. I want us to see the connection between this covenant, the eternal covenant, and the new covenant. It's just the new covenant is the in time, what is taking place in time. And, he, and the eternal covenant is what took place in eternity in reference to the plan. hope I didn't confuse anybody there, but I, I, I tried to make it more simple. I don't think I've ever said that that way but i wanted to smooth it out and make it that's the way i see it and um would i spend like three minutes there i mean i could probably do a message on that whole subject right there of the new covenant and the eternal covenant and anybody saved anywhere in history is saved by the new covenant maybe we'll look at that another time in more detail maybe even today we'll see some of that in here so I'm not I'm not here to you know debate about you know something about land in Israel. I don't care. It's it's a distraction. So we're talking about this this unconditional promise by grace. Everything's that salvation's conditioned on Christ alone without our works. All people are saved that way. Let's go back to Isaiah uh, 42. We look there a while back, I'll look at, address some more of this language here about the covenant in Isaiah 
42, starting in verse 6. Isaiah 42, verse 1, it's, this is the one that says, it talks about mine elect. The Father's talking about his elect who is Christ. Pre he's precious to the Father. And down in that same chapter, verse 6, it says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand and will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people for a light of the nations. Now here's this covenant language. This is language, the father and the son. The father, what's he do? Several things. Gives him authority, right? Appoints him, anoints him, appoints him several different things. Representative, surety, mediator, all these things. And his spirit is upon him as he does this task. And there are promises when you do this. The sacrifice is acceptable. You will be resurrected. Your flesh shall not see corruption. There's glory involved. This is again, remember we talked about the one that were face to face together. The only qualified one. So here's this language between the father and the son. Called you in righteousness. I'm going to be with you all through this. I'm going to hold your hand. Keep you. Give you for a covenant of the people. He's representative of the people of God. Representative, surety, and substitute. For the light of the nations. That's part of that mystery, right? That's us, talking about us. We're part of it. We've been allowed to be part of it in Christ alone. And uh, not even all of the Jews were ever a part of it. Not all of them. When we get to, we're going to go to Romans 9 in the weeks to come, and we'll see that right away. Not all Israel that are all of Israel. God doesn't deal in the majority. He always deals in the minority, the few. Verse 47, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisons from, uh, prisoners from the prison. Those who sit in darkness out of the prison house. So he, he's not talking about literal prisons here. He's talking about people that are in spiritual bondage, those that are in condemnation, those that are totally depraved, that there's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're in prison. They're in bondage. They're under the law. They're under the curse. They need to be redeemed from out from under the curse. They're unable. They need mercy. They need compassion. They need grace. And the start of that is, is having them gathered in this covenant as being those people that the Father gives to the Son. If, it, if that didn't happen, that's it. That's it. You're not in the group. And it's all based on not what we do, not what God sees us do in the future, but in and by and through Christ, for Christ's sake, conditioned on Christ, because of Christ. I mean, how can we take credit? Blind, look, look at the language. Blind eyes. 
we, we don't get credit groping in the dark, you know, grabbing on some kind of life preserver saying, I thank God that I was, thank God that I was smart enough to do that. And we're dead. Verse uh, 42, 8, uh, chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. So he's making it like he always does a lot of times, makes this distinction. I'm God and there's none else. You know, distinctions like that. He says, I'm the Lord, that's my name. In other words, who's talking here? I'm going to let you know, remind you, who's talking here? I am the Lord, that's my name. Now, whatever he says after this is probably pretty important. And yeah, it is. Look at it. My glory, I will not give to another. It's mine. I deserve it. Because of who I am and what I do. I mean, think about all his attributes. We've been talking about his attributes. And he engages his attributes as he acts and does things. And he shows them and displays them. And that shows his glory. And the purpose, the overarching purpose of, the, of, of God is to glorify himself in this death. And that's what the culmination of all this is going toward in the fullness of time. That's what it's unfolding to. And once he does this and gets glory for it, he's very protective of his own glory. He's faithful to his own character. He does, he's, he's done things right. He's a jealous God. Don't have any other gods before me. What's he say in the next line here? He says, he said, I'm not share my glory to another and give it away to another, nor my praise to graven images. Now we know, we've talked about this many times before. Today, in our culture, there's probably some people we know that might have shrines in their house or you know they they actually have statues and they somehow look at them and think there's something powerful in that you know but mainly today it is it is a it is an intellectual or a philosophical or, or imaginary god in our minds those that don't believe the gospel it's it's something an image we've formed in our mind that doesn't match the God of the Bible. That's idolatry. That's um, a graven image. We engrave it in our minds. Remember the word image refers to imagination, right? And our minds are idol factories. But you get the idea. We are idolaters by nature. We just, we, that's all we produce with our natural mind that doesn't match up before conversion doesn't match up with the mind of Christ and when we do that we're trying to rob some glory from God we're creating a system of salvation to where God has to share some of his glory and we get it not not know it in our minds like like we do about God we get it for ourselves in a boasting way is what I'm getting at and that's what false religion's all about. It's a glory grab, is all it is. Verse 9, Isaiah 42, verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Sounds like language that he uses in 46 that we've gone to quite often. And the new things I declare, 
before they happen, I cause you to hear. Notice that, I cause you to hear. Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise. Now, why would you do that? Because of his glory. Otherwise, you'd be singing to yourself. You'd be looking in the mirror and thinking, I'm just not looking at me. Subjectively, I'm, it's my righteousness. It's my holiness. I deserve this. God, I thank you I'm not like other men. I'm further separated and progressing in my holiness above other men. Heads and shoulders above the rest. I think I'm almost the best. But his praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea in its fullness, coasts and their peoples. And look at this. <laughs> this is, I enjoy this about God right here. This is uh, defines his jealousy, pretty much. He says, for my sake, says it twice. For my sake, I will do it. For why should uh, my name be defiled? I will not give my glory to another. He says that again, too. So it's pretty important. So in salvation, this is a basic idea about salvation, and it's revealed in the covenant in election, in that we are chosen in, by, and through Christ. This verse just kind of repeats that. He says, for my sake, I will do it. I'm not looking down through the future to see how glorious of a worker you are. I mean, he knows better than that. He's doing it for his sake, his own name's sake, for his glory's sake. And Christ is the one that's out front in preeminence, performing it, heading all things up in himself. All right, let's go to uh, Psalm 2. I just want us to see some of that language there. Sort of the same deal. It's in eternity and it comes into time. We see the purpose of God throughout the whole thing and it gives glory to God. Psalm 2, I think years ago on this text here, I did like I don't know, three or four messages back a long time ago, 12 years ago or something. Not sure if they're on Sermon Audio, can't remember the titles, but it was, it was on this text, which is part of the covenant language. Starting verse 1, why do the nations rage? I think King James says heathen. Why does the heathen rage? It's referring to nations. And the peoples imagine a vain thing. That's a question. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands into and cast away their cords from us. These are free willers. I, I, I'm autonomous. I'm independent. I, I don't want a God over me who's sovereign and powerful and dictates to me anything. I don't want that. So I'm going to declare myself uh, maybe an agnostic or an atheist. And what I'm going to do is, or, or be part of some false religion, what I'm going to do, and there's not much difference, what I'm going to do is I'm going to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, knowing that there is a God and being scared to death because I know that I haven't met up to his standard. And the rest of my days, I'm going to somehow go about to establish a righteousness that I think he might accept. 
but I'm not real sure how I'm going to do that. I'm going to experiment. In the meantime, when I'm confronted with it, I'm just going to deny that there's a God. And I'm going to fulfill and fit the definition of God's word that I am a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Psalm, I think it's Psalm 14. So they want to, they're, they're saying, I want to break out of prison. But God only breaks those that are elect out of prison and gives them eyes to see. These other types that don't eventually come to him, they're going to remain blind. And then what's the result there uh, of these people saying this against God, against God Almighty? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall mock at them. Even so, Father, it seems good in your sight, right? You've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to your people. Verse 5, then he shall speak to them in his anger and trouble them in his wrath. Yea, here's the language that starts concerning the covenant type language of salvation, his son and his people. I have set my king on my holy hill on Zion. The father has set Christ forth. In the church. Zion. Verse 7. I will declare the decree of the Lord. He has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the announcement. Of the, of the decree of. Here he is. The one I chose. The one that's qualified. The eternal son of God. The one who's going to do this task, that go on this mission to glorify me and himself and saving these people that I gave to him. Here he is. I've decreed it. I've declared it. You're my son. Uh, son, ask of me and I'll give you the heathen or the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. Covenant language, eternal talk about what's going to happen, what's going to take place. The father and son talking here again. Now, this is this is not they didn't sit down and say, oh, we're going to meet about this. This is the idea that was always in God's mind. that was unchangeable. that was eternal. that was sure and certain. Knowing that the means would eventually be used to the end, to gather these people to himself. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. And now be wise, O kings, be instructed, O you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, the word kiss means worship. Lest he be angry and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are they who put their trust in him. That's that group of people. That's all that the Father gives him. That's the ones that the Father draws. That's the ones that come to Christ by faith. 
by God-given faith, they worship the Son. They see him as their king, sitting on the holy hill, anointed and appointed by the Father. There's just some more language there, covenant language. Let's go to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 and verse 1. This is repeated a few times, different places. Acts, it's repeated at least. The Lord said to my Lord. Now, who's writing this? David is writing this. King David, the prophet. And he's talking about, he's using two names here, two lords. And he's out of it, right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. There's that, there's that, some of that language again like we saw in chapter 2. And rule in the midst of your enemies. And your people shall be willing in the day of your power. In holy adornment from the womb of the morning, you shall have the dew of your youth. Now notice this here. This is reminds me of the God who cannot lie promised eternal life before the world began. In Titus, we read that verse. Kind of similar language. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the Father's telling the Son this. All, all covenant language here. All stuff that does eventually unfold in time. I would like to say, I would like to be here when this happened, but it wasn't a place in time or really in eternity. It's something that God has always thought. So we don't have to say, I wish I was there when this was talked about. We're here now. <laughs> Just believe it, right? I think sometimes we, we want to whip up some extra like magic stuff in our mind and make it more sensational. We miss what's actually said. Just lap that up right there. It's bread. It's water. This is the life words. The words that I speak to you, they're spirit and they're life. There's a sense in which, I don't have this in my notes, I'll probably maybe get to it sometime soon, but I want to say it before I forget. As this covenant unfolds in time, there's a sense in which we enter into it ourselves. And it's by faith. It's not like we're part of it that we're going to make it work, but we're a beneficiary of it, right? We're involved only that he chose us and we provided the sin that went to Christ that he paid for, that glorified God. When it was paid for. But we enter into it by faith. In reference to agreeing with it. The covenant was made. It was talked about. It was agreed upon. The, the trinity in harmony. Agreed with it. And their wills were in harmony. And then when we're converted. We're given faith to say yes and amen. To the promises of God in Christ. So there's a sense in which we do enter into it. Experientially. We do legally when we're justified. And we experience it by conscious awareness when the gospel is revealed to us and we have an understanding. When we do it, experience it. In other words, we know about it. When we look at verses, it talks about the mystery being revealed. That's what I'm talking about. We know about it. There's knowledge. It's given to our understanding. 
We're given faith to embrace it. We'll probably come back and look at some more of this here. Psalm 110 is just too much good. There's four verses, and I've highlighted all for every single word in every four verses. So it's pretty impressive language. Let's close out with um, looking at, um, let's go to 2 Samuel. I'm not going to spend all day and look at some context here. I want to look at the aspect that David's talking about that is related to our topic about the covenant. Again, there are different covenants that God made with people, and some of those look to and feature and focus and kind of shimmer like a diamond and show uh, the eternal covenant or show the new covenant, show Christ, of course, in all of it. Samuel, Second uh, Samuel chapter 23 and verse 1. And now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised on high and anointed of God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. He that rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be the light of the morning, when the sun rises, even the morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth, be clear, shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God. David, you probably heard the history of David. He's just a lot of trouble. His sons, a lot of trouble with his whole family. It was a mess. Yet he's made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For all my salvation and all my desire, will he not make it grow? So, you know, David, with all, he was a king. And there was all kind of problems in the kingdom, problems within his own family. And he said, my house is not in the greatest of shape. My kingdom's not in the greatest of shape. But I know this. <laughs> my God, in reference to saving my soul, has assigned the Lord Christ to be my mediator and to be my surety and representative. He's made an everlasting covenant with me and he's ordered it in all things and sure. I create, I, I've said many times that, uh, and I just find it hard to believe if nobody really has the same thought. I crave order everywhere I go, in the car, in the house, at work, in this room, in my mind, in my library, I crave order. Salvation is no different. It's the most important area to crave order. It has to do with God revealing things. And as they're revealed and the pieces of the puzzle, so to speak, come together, we grow and learn, order seems to come together in our minds. Now, we know that we haven't learned everything that we want to learn and that we will continue to learn till the day we die. And that order we know is perfect out there and we crave to see it even the more. We want to conform our minds to the perfect order. Knowing that, as I said, we know that now, even though we can't 
we can't reach to perfection in doctrinal knowledge and, and wisdom in Christ. We have him and we have his truth. And in eternity, I don't know what it's going to be like. I'm not even going to talk about conjecture about what I hope to think it might be like. You know, like we said, some people talk about flying around, you know, stupid stuff like that. And they talk about things. Remember? Thoughts on worship. We did three parts. Some of it was more than about don't worship things. Don't bring things into worship. Christ accomplished redemption. That's what it's all about. And some people have the audacity to say, you know, okay, yeah, let's move on from the gospel. Let's, let's move on. There's other things to talk about besides Christ. And they want to talk about detailed things and not Christ and not the gospel. But the simplest of things have depth to them and we grow in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the attributes of God, salvation, all these things. If all the things were written about Christ that he had done, the world could not contain all the books, it says in John, right? Christ is remarkable, right? We are able to remark about him World without end, amen, right? He is one that after he had performed this work, uh, and he did not fail, he sat down at the right hand, after he had purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of, of the throne of God. And in Ephesians 1, it talks about that that's the highest spot ever of anyone in this world or the world to come. And we're going to worship him in reference to being that spot holder, that position of who he is because of what he did. And um, there's depth to that. There's constant learning. And that is enough to fuel our worship every single day and every single second of our life. And the personal work of Christ is, is the answer for everything. You know, some people would say, well... I beg to differ with that, and they want to talk about assurance, and they want to take it someplace else. And I say, you go ahead and take it someplace else. Not in here. <laughs> Our assurance is in Christ. And he is where he is because of what he did and who he is. And it says, I'm right there with him. I'm seated with him. And you know what he's doing right now? He's busy. He's praying for me. And he's praying for you if you're a believer. He's making intercession for his people. I'm going to stop there. And uh, there'll be another, there'll be a third section on thoughts on the decree. And, um, you know, like I said last week, I made the statement that it doesn't matter really where we go from here in this subject because we can weave in and out of this thing. There's just so much we can talk about and we're, it's already out of order, but doesn't matter. I mean, I've already learned things since the first message of this series. And if you learn something, you're going to think, man, I could have adjusted this different. Right? So, I mean, that's a plus. At least I learned something. Any questions, comments? There's some things that are coming up in the series. We're going to be, of course, we're, we're talking about the purpose and the plan of God. And we're talking about, again, the people that he's choosing. And we're going to get back to the, the area of the sovereignty of God in making that choice. And we're going to demolish some bad views. And we're going to talk about 
something even before that, the love of God, right? How that works. And we'll see the love of God and the election of God kind of working together at the same time. And um, there's a lot of bad stuff we can weed out and expose and show. It's not like this. It's like this. Uh, some of us used to believe some of those wrong ways. And, you know, all those wrong ways uh, attribute part of salvation to the glory of man. And this is why we need to bring these things out, point them out, so we can avoid them and, you know, get anything near that out of our minds and so that we can, like, help other people that might be holding to some of these wrong views, help them out and show them the truth. But there's, uh, you know, I think I, when I introduced this subject, I talked about there might be 20 parts. It's going to be way more than that. And we're going to take our time. We'll probably do some other messages in between that are not part of the series. I've already got like four messages that I'm wanting to do that's not even part of the series. I've got notes at home. Continue. Uh, those that are listening on video and on Facebook, continue to You can send me uh, through my messenger. Um, you can send me questions, stuff you want to. I might already have it planned to get to. But uh, and people in here, you can do the same thing as give me stuff ahead of time. Make sure you cover this issue. And I will. I had uh, talked to me and Eric. We're talking last night. We're talking about Romans nine. We're going to get to Romans nine. We're going to look at some texts. Deeper and further than what we've looked at before, we're going to camp at some areas of different texts and look at those. I know we started out in Ephesians, just use that one text for introduction, kind of use it as a springboard. We're going to get back to it. Nothing else? Remember those that are listening on video, we got a conference coming up April 14th and 15th. The 14th is uh, Saturday at 5 o'clock. Richard Warmack is preaching for us. And then after that, James uh, Mawali will kind of show his what's going on in Africa, the, the work there, the mission work. And then the next day, Sunday, we'll have Richard preach again. Uh, everybody's welcome to come. We're going to have some food here uh, Saturday evening, probably around 7. And then Sunday afternoon after the message, we'll eat lunch somewhere locally. On our church page on thegospeldefense.com, it says our ministry. If you click on there, it shows a few things that are in the local area that are not too far from here that people can do in their spare time if they have spare time that weekend. All right, that's all I got.